Hello, welcome to this primary care call to action for venous thromboembolism management, sharpening skills in the recognition, treatment, and secondary prevention phases. My name is Jeffrey Barnes. I'm a cardiologist and vascular medicine specialist at the University of Michigan. And I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, Dr. Tracy Minicello, who's professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. Now let's start with a little overview of venous thromboembolism. First, VTE or venous thromboembolism is the inclusion of either a deep vein thrombosis, a DVT, and or a pulmonary embolism, a PE. Collectively, these two conditions referred to as venous thromboembolism or VTE are quite common. In fact, there's an estimated 900,000 VTE events every year, and they can happen to anyone. Thankfully, many of them are preventable if we can recognize the risk factors. Now, many patients who develop venous thromboembolism have poor outcomes. In fact, an estimated 100,000 Americans die from a pulmonary embolism or DVT every year. Yet many more will continue to live with the long-term consequences of VTE, which is why it's important we understand how to diagnose and how to manage these in both the acute and long-term phases. Now, there are important long-term consequences of both deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary embolism. For patients who have a deep vein thrombosis, in addition to the acute thrombotic process, there's also a chronic consequence that can occur known as the post-thrombotic syndrome. We know that the presence of a clot as well as the associated inflammation can damage the wall of the veins as well as the one-way valves that exist within the veins of the legs, leading to collection of fluid, varicose veins, swelling, achiness, and other symptoms associated with the post-thrombotic syndrome. Similarly, for patients who have a pulmonary embolism, many of them have long-term disability or symptoms, feelings of shortness of breath, of fatigue, of not having quite the level of exercise tolerance they previously had. These patients are often described as having the post-PE syndrome represented on the right-hand side of the screen with those uh, hashed lines. Notice that only a small fraction of them are ever diagnosed with chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. So the chronic consequences of a PE event are much greater than the CTAF that we often have heard about uh, and, and are trying to prevent. And lastly, for any patient who develops a DVT or a PE, they can often have important and disabling psychological consequences. Many patients report high levels of anxiety or new elevations in depressive symptoms after an event certainly if they're fearful of having another event in the future. And it's important that we all address these important consequences of venous thromboembolism. Now, what does a DVT look like when somebody presents to the primary care office? Well, the three most common symptoms are unilateral leg pain, warmth, or swelling of that particular leg. There are also some important signs that you may find on physical exam, such as unilateral edema, and if you actually measure the calf circumference, you'll find that one leg is markedly larger than the other. You may see dilated superficial veins, warmth or erythema in that limb, and you could even find pain or tenderness as you move down palpating along the course of a vein. 
Now, what about a pulmonary embolism? These are sometimes seen in the primary care office as well. In fact, many times they can be overlooked because they have very nonspecific symptoms. I'm talking here about shortness of breath or chest pain. Things that can represent a wide number of different diagnoses can also represent pulmonary embolism. Now, if you see a patient who has symptoms associated with the DVT, that certainly raises the possibility that a pulmonary embolism could be present. But sometimes patients will present just with cough or hemoptysis and very rarely syncope or near syncope. So we need to be uh, really diligent in thinking about pulmonary embolism and whether patients have risk factors such that they need further evaluation so that we don't miss the diagnosis. So there are a couple tools that we use when we think about making a diagnosis. First is we establish a pretest probability. This is most commonly done using the Wells score, and there's one both for DVT and for PE. Once you categorize somebody into either low, moderate, or high risk based on that pretest probability score, you then follow up with confirmatory testing. For low risk patients, this is often using the D-dimer test, where a negative test can be helpful to rule out a DVT or PE. And then for those intermediate and high risk folks, you'll probably go ahead and do imaging. Now, it's important to know that that D-dimer does not have a fixed value for all patients. Yes, there's a threshold of about 500 micrograms per liter, but we actually allow that threshold to go up as patients get older. So we often talk about 10 times their age as being the cutoff point for a positive or negative D-dimer when it's combined with a pretest probability score like the Wells score. Here are the two different Wells scores. On the left, you'll see the Wells score for deep vein thrombosis. And on the right, you'll see the Wells score for pulmonary embolism. And these are a compilation of different risk factors, but also signs and symptoms that you might find. It's important to note that each of these includes an element that asks whether DVT or PE is the most likely diagnosis. Because if other things are more likely, it actually reduces the pretest probability that your patient has a DVT or PE. But if this is the leading item in your differential, then you, get, uh, you would go ahead and work up that patient for a DVT or PE. Now, this is a great diagram for how we can approach the workup. As we see a patient who we suspect may have a DVT, you compute that pretest probability well score. If they have a low pretest probability, meaning the likelihood is less than 10%, that is a great opportunity to go ahead and do the D-dimer test. Because if it's negative, if it's low, you can rule out DVT with no further workup. But if it's high, you'll go ahead and perform the confirmatory imaging. That same imaging, meaning a whole leg ultrasound or a proximal leg ultrasound, is also what you would use for a patient with intermediate or high-risk DVT. We don't use a D-dimer in that situation. It's really a similar setup for patients with pulmonary embolism. If you suspect a pulmonary embolism, you calculate your pretest probability score. If that's low, or in this case, possibly even intermediate, go ahead and perform the D-dimer test. If that is elevated, then you would use either a VQ scan, or most likely we're gonna do a pulmonary angiogram CT scan uh, to confirm the diagnosis. But if that D-dimer was negative, no PE is, uh, is found and that person can be ruled out. Now, if you've diagnosed somebody with a pulmonary embolism, or perhaps they've been diagnosed in the emergency department, they're further gonna be risk stratified. What's the likelihood of having a complication following their PE? 
And the PESI score, the Pulmonary Embolism Severity Index, is a commonly used score to estimate 30-day mortality. Now, you may see some of these patients because there's increasing enthusiasm in outpatient management of PE. Somebody who presents to the emergency department gets diagnosed with a PE, but is found to be at low risk, what we would call a PESI class one or two, they may actually be discharged home without ever being admitted to the hospital, and the plan would be for rapid follow-up in the primary care setting. So these are patients in whom you should be aware and be able to provide rapid follow-up to ensure that they're getting appropriate therapy. I'm gonna turn it over now to Dr. Minicello, who's gonna walk us through our first case. Thank you, Jeff. That's a fantastic and whirlwind introduction to this, to this field. Let's apply what Dr. Barnes just taught us to a case. So this is Jackie. Jackie is 57 years old and she comes in for a one week visit following a cholecystectomy. Now she notes that she has new leg discomfort onset since the surgery. She is completely hemodynamically stable. Her weight is at her baseline. Her BMI is 31, weight is 123 kilograms. She's slightly hypertensive, 142 over 77, but she runs that in that range. She has no respiratory distress at all, but her right leg is quite swollen, larger than the left leg, and it's erythematous and edematous. She doesn't have any prior history of DVT or PE. She does not have cancer. She's postmenopausal and she's a non-smoker. And the medications she's on right now, she has a pain regimen postoperatively, and she takes antihypertensive and a statin. So let's think about her pretest probability, as Dr. Barnes just taught us. We'll apply the Wells criteria. So for Jackie, she's going to get a point for having had recent surgery, a point for the calf swelling we found on exam a point for the fact that she is an entire leg that's swollen and another point for pitting edema. So she gets a total of four points in the Wells criteria, which, put, which puts her in a high pretest probability range. For patients with high pretest probability, we're not going to get a D-dimer because no matter what the results are of the D-dimer, we need to proceed to ultrasound. So we're gonna go right to ultrasound. And unfortunately her ultrasound indeed shows an acute right popliteal deep vein thrombosis. So now we have to think about how we're going to treat Jackie. And when you're considering anticoagulant therapy, you really wanna customize it to the patient. So let's talk about what our options are and then we'll think about how, uh, what we'll choose for Jackie in this case. So it used to be that you had to use parenteral therapy and bridge to warfarin and our options were unfractionated heparin or low molecular heparin bridging to warfarin. But as you all know, there's many more options now. And we have two regimens that are entirely oral, meaning you don't need any parenteral therapy at all for treatment of acute DVT and PE. One is with rivaroxaban, 15 milligrams twice daily for the first three weeks for 21 days, and then stepping down to the maintenance dose of 20 milligrams a day. And the second is apixaban, 10 milligrams BID for seven days, and then stepping down to the maintenance dose of five milligrams BID. While there are other DOACs or directly acting oral anticoagulants that can be used to treat acute VTE like dibigodran or adoxaban. In, if you use either of these, you do still have to use parenteral therapy first for a period of time for five to seven days. Then you switch 
to that oral anticoagulant because they're not approved for monotherapy the way rivaroxaban and apixaban are. Now let's think about some of the features of these different anticoagulants so that you can customize your choice to the patient. So as I mentioned, rivaroxaban and apixaban, immediate onset of action, and you're able to use oral monotherapy, meaning no parenteral lead-in for these. It's important to remember that of the new agents, or the newer agents, dabigatran, rivaroxaban, apixaban, and edoxaban, all of them rely to some degree on the kidneys. Dabigatran the most, about 80%, apixaban the least, about 20%, where warfarin does not at all. This is something you'll keep in mind when you're customizing your anticoagulation selection to your patient. For rivaroxaban, remember that its bioavailability depends on taking it with food. It must be taken with a meal. This is really important to think about in patients who are struggling with food security. That may not be the best agent for them. Now, a number of people have expressed concerns about the use of some of the directly acting oral anticoagulants, the concern about the lack of reversibility, which used to be something that led people to favor warfarin. You should know though that there are now direct antidotes for all of the agents with the exception of adoxaban. So we have idarucizumab for reversal for dabigatran in the setting of bleeding and indexinet alpha for reversal of rivaroxaban or apixaban in the setting of bleeding. The risk of bleeding is lower with these directly acting oral anticoagulants than warfarin, so we would hope we would have to reach for those less. So when should we reach for low molecular heparin and warfarin over the DOAX? So the DOAX are generally first-line therapy for VTE because of the ease of use, the lack of the need for dietary stasis, and a better, generally a better safety profile. But there are still times when low molecular heparin and warfarin will be what you reach for. Antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. In patients who have antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, studies have shown that these patients who are treated with a DOAC instead of warfarin have higher rates of thromboembolic events, particularly in the arteries. So we generally avoid the DOACs in these patients. Certainly if someone has a mechanical valve, they would be on warfarin already. Warfarin is the preferred agent because DOACs are contraindicated here. Remember that for some people, uh, Access to DOACs is a challenge. Affordability is an issue. So you want to make sure if you're reaching for a DOAC that they can indeed afford that therapy. And while warfarin we know is the agent that has the most drug interactions, DOACs too have some drug interactions, some that require that we avoid their use. So be sure there's no severe drug-drug interaction. And if there is in these patients, we'll be reaching for low molecular heparin bridging to warfarin. And then finally, I mentioned that the DOACs are metabolized by the kidneys, but they're also metabolized to some degree by the liver, more so for apixaban and rivaroxaban, less so for dabigatran. But in patients who have severe liver disease, we tend to avoid the DOACs because unlike warfarin, there's no real reliable way to measure anticoagulant effect and to determine if that organ dysfunction is resulting in accumulation of the anticoagulant. So let's return to Jackie, our 57-year-old woman who's now been diagnosed with a right popliteal DVT one week post-op. So Dr. Barnes, what do you think her risk factors are for VTE? Why did, why did this happen to Jackie? 
Well, I think there are two important risk factors that are jumping out to me. The first is that she's just had a surgery. She had this cholecystectomy. And we know that patients are at increased risk of DVT and PE anytime they've had a surgical procedure, especially if they're having any immobility afterwards. But then that was coupled by the fact that she also has obesity. And obesity is an important yet often underappreciated risk factor for VTE. So I think those two came together and probably tipped her over the edge for having this clot. I, I would agree. Um, and, and while she is not on uh, hormone replacement therapy, that would be something we would want to look for. We, they mentioned that she's postmenopausal, um, and that could be a risk factor as well, though in this case, she is not on that. You mentioned um, obesity. Her BMI, I believe, was 31 or 32. When thinking about selection of agent for anticoagulation. Remember, we're, we're talking about really wanting to customize agent selection to the patient. Is weight a consideration when you're trying to decide which agent to use? Do you have any weight cutoff for use of DOAX versus warfarin? You know, that's a really great question. And I would say a few years ago, this was a more important issue for me. I was concerned that the DOAX with their fixed dose approach may not be reliable in patients at the extremes of body weight. In that case, I'm thinking of a BMI greater than say 40 or a weight above 120 to 140 kilos. But in the last few years, we've had some increasing observational data to suggest those patients do just as well on a DOAC. So I'm no longer concerned about weight and I will now use a DOAC for pretty much all of my patients as long as they're otherwise eligible. I would agree, Dr. Barnes, and um, you know, the International Society for Thrombosis and Hemostasis recently updated their guidance around this to liberalize that. They had previously advised we avoid DOAX in obesity for acute VTE and now have liberalized that. I will share that I still have some reservation in patients who are at the marked extremes of weight, well over uh, a BMI of 50. Um, while we don't usually recommend testing, DOAC level testing, and those patients who are markedly obese or with a BMI over 50, I may do that just because we don't have quite as much information in that cohort of patients. But I do think more and more information um, and studies are bec becoming available there. With um, Jackie, what agent are you gonna choose? Well, I'm definitely going to reach for one of the direct oral anticoagulants, as you described, and the ability to use an oral-only strategy is just so convenient. So for me, it's either going to be a Pixaban, starting her out at 10 milligrams twice a day for that first week, and then dropping to the five milligram twice a day standard dose. Or I might switch for Rivaroxaban, choosing to go with that 15 milligram twice a day dosing for the first three weeks, and then to the standard dose of 20 milligrams once a day. And really the way I think about deciding between them has a lot to do with things like, can the patient take a twice a day medication or do they really need to be on a once a day pill? And that might drive my choice between a Pixaban, which is always twice a day, 
or rivaroxaban, which becomes once a day after the first three weeks. I might think about some of the, the risks of bleeding. There's been some observational data to suggest apixaban might have lower risks of bleeding than rivaroxaban. So if I'm particularly concerned about bleeding, that might sort of nudge me more towards apixaban. Uh, and of course, what she can get access to and what she has coverage for, that's also going to be a big driver of what agent I select. I completely agree with that. I will also add that I may lean more towards apixaban if there is more uh, compromised renal function, just because perhaps it's a little less renally cleared than rivaroxaban. Now, when would you want to follow up on Jackie? She's just been diagnosed with this new acute DVT. How soon do you think she should be seen? And what are the things that you would want to emphasize for her that would make her, where you would want her to reach back out to you uh, for follow-up? Well, I think one of the first things I want to make sure is that she can get through that first transition pretty well. As we've mentioned, both apixaban and rivaroxaban have these higher total daily doses, either for one or three weeks before they transition. And I wanna make sure she makes that transition appropriately. That may be a great opportunity for a nurse or one of the team members just to contact her and say, are you ready to make this switch? It's also a really good opportunity to use the starter packs, which have that entire first month built in. So you're not giving multiple prescriptions the patient, it's much easier for them to know exactly which pills to take how many times a day. But then I'm probably going to continue to follow and, and, and have some sort of a follow-up within the first month or so to make sure she's not having any complications related to bleeding, that she's gotten the prescription, and that she's able to continue to get the prescription for the first several months and to make sure that she doesn't continue to have new symptoms that would suggest a new clot somewhere. Uh, so those would be the kinds of things I would follow up with her. So probably a phone call within the first week and then maybe a return to clinic at about the one month mark or something like that. And Dr. Barnes, would you be prescribing graduated compression stockings? Do you think she needs those? I usually use graduated compression stockings for the purpose of symptom relief. So if a patient is having significant symptoms related to their DVT, that can be helpful. But if they're not having significant symptoms, it's not necessarily going to prevent the future clot. That's really the role of the anticoagulant. So I base my decision on their symptoms. And if they have swelling and if that's bothersome, then some sort of a leg wrap, whether it's you know, temporary with uh, an ACE bandage or whether it's more of that graduated compression stocking can be quite helpful. And based on Jackie's signs and symptoms, this does not sound to be severe DVT. She certainly didn't have signs of phlegmasia, um, but that is an important thing to think about, particularly in patients who have a more proximal iliofemoral DVT, that these are folks that we would consider referring um, to our vascular surgery colleagues, because when thromboses are this advanced and this dramatic, they may be candidates for more aggressive interventions like thrombolytics and mechanical thrombectomy. What is your um, practice around this, Dr. Barnes? It's such a great question. I always advise my patients to monitor their symptoms. By the time we put them on an anticoagulant, their leg symptoms should start getting better day over day, not getting worse. If anyone finds their symptoms are getting worse, they need to come back and see me right away. Certainly if they have swelling of the entire leg, if they start to notice significant discoloration of the leg, 
And any loss of feeling or uh, cold sensation, any of those types of things are big red flag. Now, thankfully they're quite rare, but those are the things I'm gonna warn a patient to look for and get in contact with me ASAP. Otherwise, they should notice over the first two or three days that their swelling gets better, the discomfort gets better, and that's a patient who's going to do well with anticoagulation alone. Great. Thank you. So now I will hand it back over to Dr. Barnes as we move through the territory of venous thromboembolic disease. Great. Well, let's go ahead and discuss another case because I think it's going to help us think about some of the important management decision-making uh, elements of uh, patients with DVT and PE. This is a case of Ariel. She is a 47-year-old woman who developed some severe calf pain about two days ago in her right leg. Now, notably, she has just returned on a flight from Bangkok, Thailand, back to New York City three days ago, so just before this event happened. Now, when you see her in the office, you see that her vital signs are fairly normal, her heart rate, her respiratory rate, her oxygen saturation, her temperature, those are all within the normal range. She has a normal blood pressure, and in this case, her BMI is actually normal as well at 24. Notably, she does have a history of chronic kidney disease, and her estimated glomerular filtration rate is 45. When you go ahead and measure her calf, you notice that her right calf is about five centimeters larger than her left calf. And you do see swelling of that entire leg. There's a little bit of localized tenderness with some pitting edema in that leg. And she tells you that she's never had a blood clot before, no history of cancer, and she's a non-smoker. She quit smoking about 12 years ago. Her medications do include an oral contraceptive pill, and that includes both progesterone and an estrogen agent to it. And she's also taking a multivitamin that has iron. We go ahead and calculate her pretest probability using that same well score for DVT. And as you can see, she'll get points for having calf swelling that's more than three centimeters greater in the affected leg. The entire leg is swollen. There's localized tenderness and pitting edema. That gives her four points and puts her in the high-risk group. So again, this is a patient for whom we have a high suspicion for DVT. There's no role for a D-dimer test. Go ahead and perform the lower extremity ultrasound. Dr. Minicello, I wanna stop here and ask you a little bit. When you hear this case, what are some of the risk factors that are coming out for you as to why this patient may have a DVT? Good question. You know, this is a, a young woman, so we really want to think about why this might have happened to her. That flight that she just took is a really long one from Thailand to New York City, and we know that airline travel increases the risk of thrombosis, and as the duration of flight goes up, the risk of thrombosis goes up with the inflection point somewhere around four to six hours. So this was probably quite a long flight. So that's one risk factor. And then you also mentioned that she's on an oral contraceptive agent that includes estrogen and progesterone and estrogen containing contraceptives we know are associated with an increased risk of thrombosis. You know, um, thrombosis is often uh, due to multiple risk factors that layer on, and this is a perfect example of that that perhaps it's the OCP plus the flight that has pushed her over. Perhaps she also has an underlying predisposition. But those are the things um, that I am thinking of now. I always do also consider when someone develops a VTE, I wanna think about diseases that keep company with thrombosis too. 
that may or may not um, be in the problem list, so to speak, and some of these are less common, but just to make sure this isn't someone who has nephrotic syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease, multiple myeloma, MGUS, um, sickle cells, sickle trait, things like that that keep company, that we wanna take that opportunity to review the history and make sure that's, that's not the case. She's less than 50, so her risk of having a cancer-associated thrombosis is much lower, but still in all of these cases, we wanna be mindful of that and make sure patients are up to date on their cancer screening. You know, we've talked a number of times now about the role of the pretest probability and how that guides whether or not we'll order a D-dimer versus go straight to imaging. And I'm wondering in your practice, do you go ahead and formally calculate that Wells score or that pretest probability for your patients? Or do you follow more of a gestalt sort of, eh, I think this person's low risk, I think they're moderate risk to help make the decision as to whether to order the D-dimer or go straight to imaging? How do you operationalize that? Well, that's a great question. And I, I guess I, I should, I'll be honest and say I, I I, I am a gestaltist and I think um, I do a lot more of that. When teaching though, I do use the well score um, for both DVT and PE. In this particular case of a person who took a long flight, was on OCPs, has unilateral swelling, it doesn't matter to me what the D-dimer is. I'm going to end up getting an ultrasound and that's in line with the well score. The times that I've looked back and kind of checked the well score to see if a I'm jiving with their recommendations, I, I am. But I, I, I will be honest, I don't use it as formally unless I'm on the fence and that's when I can find it helpful. You know, that's interesting. I find that if I have that gestalt that this person is high risk, I go ahead and go straight to imaging like you do. But if I say, I think this person's low risk, I do take the time to calculate the well score um, and whether it's from a medical legal standpoint, because that way I can document the low risk, combine that with the, the ultras or the D-dimer uh, test, or whether it's just to reassure myself that I'm not missing something, that tends to be where I use it most often. And then I can just put it in my note, well score was a one, that makes them low risk, move forward, something like that. So uh, different ways, but, but clearly having a plan, I think is, is most important here. And that documentation you mentioned, I think is critical whether you do a well score or you you say, I believe it's low pretest probability. I think that documentation is, is, that's a great point. Now for this case, we're gonna go ahead and order that ultrasound and, and we haven't yet got the res result yet, but you know, we've already talked, this is a person in whom we have a high pretest probability. If that compression ultrasound comes back as negative, are you done or how do you manage that? What would you do in a patient like this who you think is highly likely to have a DVT if that first imaging test is not revealing for a DVT? You know, I think we always have to be careful with the limitations of any lab testing, right? Nothing is perfect. So if I have a very, very high pretest probability, especially if my lab is doing an ultrasound that's just proximal, um, and particularly if I don't have a D-dimer, I will then be much more inclined to make sure I get a follow-up ultrasound within a week if there are still symptoms. If I have a negative D-dimer and a negative whole leg ultrasound, um, I think it is highly unlikely. I will say though, um, 
in obese patients, sometimes the ultrasound is not as sensitive and we may need to go forward to a different type of imaging. And that has been something um, that we have bumped up against a number of times. Um, but you know, if, if we really feel this is what it is, we don't have a good alternative diagnosis. And particularly if the patient is not getting better, then I may move forward to you know, a CT or MRV. How about you, Dr. Barnes? Yeah, I, I think that is a, a great suggestion that if your suspicion is high enough, um, the ability to repeat the test can be really useful in the situation. And, and, and so following up with a test maybe uh, five to seven days later makes a lot of sense just to make sure that you haven't picked up something new. Or, you know, in the case of, of Ariel here where she had calf pain, perhaps that calf DVT might have propagated and then you would pick that up in, in the popliteal or a more proximal vessel. So the ability to repeat the test if your pretest probability is high, but the initial imaging test is negative is a really great strategy to use. Well, why don't we go ahead and think about her case a little bit more. She went ahead and had that imaging study. And as you can see on the screen here, she did have an acute DVT. You can see the image here of her right popliteal vein. And on the left side of the screen is the non-compressed image of the vein and associated artery. And on the right side is with the attempt at compression. And you can see that there's clot in there preventing that vein from being compressed. Now, the full report here reported out an acute DVT in the right superficial femoral vein, popliteal vein, and posterior tibial vein. And Dr. Minichilla, I'm wondering if you can help us think through this. Does this mean she has both superficial and deep vein thromboses or are all of these deep veins? Help us understand the nomenclature here uh, as we're interpreting this test result. That's um, a great question and I'm glad you, you brought that up. Um, superficial femoral vein, this is kind of a, an ancient term. We're not using it as much anymore, but I do still see it in some ultrasound reports. The superficial femoral vein is actually a deep vein. It's just above the deep femoral vein. So it can be misleading because of course you might think that's indeed a superficial vein. And we may approach the treatment of superficial vein thrombosis differently than we do deep vein thrombosis. But superficial femoral vein, which we now call just the femoral vein is a deep vein. The popliteal vein is as well as a posterior um, tibial vein. So all of these veins in this ultrasound are deep veins. Right, yeah, and, and it's really national recommendations that we change the nomenclature to just call it the femoral vein. But I agree with you, it's good to be aware of that because some labs may not have updated their templates yet. Let's go ahead and think a little bit more about Ariel. As you remember, she's our 47-year-old woman who had that calf pain that developed two days ago after this flight back from Bangkok, Thailand to New York City, she gets diagnosed with a right leg DVT. So Dr. Minicello, which anticoagulant are you going to be thinking about for her? You know, I agree with you what you said last time, you're going to reach for a Pixaban or a Rivaroxaban, you know, the DOAX or first line therapy. For Ariel, because she has compromised renal function, I probably lean towards a Pixaban if she can comply with twice daily dosing. So both of the rivaroxaban and a Pixaban are twice daily initially, but rivaroxaban after the first three weeks is a once daily drug. And a lot of people really prefer that. But if Ariel can, can do the twice daily, I'd 
I'd probably choose a Pixaban. I think to be honest, either would be fine if her clearance um, is truly still in the area that it was where you noted previously, but I might just lean towards a Pixaban. You know, you bring up the important point of renal function, and we know that she has some moderate uh, chronic kidney disease here. If I'm used to using these drugs, say, for the prevention of stroke in patients with AFib, I often think about having to reduce the dose of either apixaban or rivaroxaban when patients have more severe forms of renal dysfunction. Is that the same with patients who have DVT and PE? Do we dose reduce as the renal function gets worse? Or is it more of a fixed dose for all patients, regardless of renal function? How should we think about that? I'm so glad you brought that up. Uh, because this is an area of confusion for, for many. I think that's one of the, the challenges with DOACs. With warfarin, it was just the same dose. You targeted two to three, pretty much no matter whether it was AFib or VTE. With the DOACs, the dose, dosing algorithms are different. The VTE dosing is different from the AFib dosing. Um, and as you saw that, as Dr. Barnes outlined, you know, you have a three weeks of higher dose rivaroxaban or a week of higher dose apixaban. With renal insufficiency, there's dose reduction recommended for patients um, with atrial fibrillation if they're treated with rivaroxaban and their clearance is less than 50, or if they're treated with apixaban and they have two out of three low weight um, advanced age or elevated creatinine. We do not have those recommendations for DOAC dosing with VTE with rivaroxaban or apixaban. It, they, there's no dose reduction recommended for acute VTE treatment with apixaban or rivaroxaban. And I know I just said that twice, but I did it on purpose because this is definitely an area of confusion and we still see this a lot in our, in our hospital. Yeah, I get this question all the time and I remind folks, it's the same dosing for all patients across the renal function spectrum. Perhaps those with end-stage renal disease, we may consider not using a DOAC if we're not comfortable, but if we're gonna use a DOAC, it's the same dosing for all patients. And, and I agree, that's such an important point. So this is a patient who presented to clinic with these symptoms. We've got the opportunity to make this diagnosis in the outpatient setting. Can we just go ahead and treat her as an outpatient or is this somebody who needs to be sent to the emergency department or even admitted to the hospital? How would you manage her? So I think whenever possible, we try to treat people in the outpatient arena. Admission to the hospital is becoming more and more complicated. And as you know, all any admission to the hospital, there's risk for other adverse outcomes. So in patients with DVT, we're thinking about admitting to the hospital if we cannot control the pain with oral agents. If the patient um, is at very high risk for bleeding with initiation of anticoagulation. And certainly if the patient has compromised venous um, blood flow, right? If we're talking about phlegmasia or something like that, or if we're thinking this is a patient who may need urgent evaluation for more aggressive interventions like thrombolysis or mechanical thrombectomy. And also if there are issues with access to medication um, or concerns with, uh, with adherence and safety. But the vast majority of patients with acute DVT, and as you were mentioning, many patients now with acute pulmonary embolism can be treated successfully and safely in the outpatient arena. 
I, I agree with that. And I always encourage my colleagues to leverage their outpatient resources to make that a reality. Know who can support you uh, if you're initiating anticoagulation for a patient with an acute DVT or even an acute PE and you need support from a specialist or you need to know that your lab can get the results back quickly. Having those robust systems really helps to keep people out of the hospital. And we know patients don't want to be in the hospital if they don't need to. So the next question here is going to be how long to treat this patient for. We've, we've initiated therapy probably using one of our oral-only strategies, but how long do we need to continue therapy? And, and, and so we're going to go through a couple slides that helps us think through that process. You know, it's important to think about the recurrence risk because that's really going to dictate how long we want to keep somebody on an anticoagulant. And these are some relatively simple numbers that I like to keep in my head as, as good estimates of risk of recurrence. If a patient's clot occurred in the setting of a transient risk factor, something like a major surgery or a long plane flight of more than say four to six to eight hours, this is an opportunity where that provoking factor can go away. And therefore the risk of recurrence at one year or five years is much lower, more like one to 3%. If this person had a more minor provoking risk factor, something like a short plane ride or a short car ride, that might be somebody who's at a bit of a higher risk of recurrence. And I'm not sure exactly whether they're going to need long-term therapy or not. If I can't figure out why this person had the clot, this was an unprovoked or does not have any sort of a transient risk factor, or if they have a persistent risk factor, I'm thinking about things like obesity, thinking about chronic inflammatory uh, conditions. These patients are at even higher risk of recurrence. These patients often will benefit from long-term therapy. And of course, anyone who has a cancer-associated thrombosis is at the highest risk of VTE recurrence. And we need to be especially thoughtful about um, how we treat them. That risk of recurrence needs to be paired with the estimated risk of bleeding. And this is a figure that I use to sort of conceptualize this. There are no absolute numbers here, but this is how I think about it. If you look at this figure on the y-axis is our estimated risk of VTE recurrence. Those at the bottom are at the lowest risk of recurrence. Those are the major but transient risk factors like the long plane ride, like the surgery or mobilization. But as you go up that y-axis, you see that the risk of recurrence gets higher. Now, along the x-axis, that's along the horizon here, that's the risk of bleeding. Hopefully, many patients are towards the left side, low risk of bleeding, but we know that some are at higher risk of bleeding. Maybe they've previously had a bleed before, they have chronic kidney disease, they have low platelets, they need to be on antiplatelet medications. And we need to integrate the risk of recurrence with the risk of bleeding when we make a decision as to who gets extended therapy and who does not. So if you look at the first marker here, that's the circle with the one, you can see this is a patient who is at very low risk of VTE recurrence. It does not matter what the risk of bleeding is, they probably don't need to be on long-term uh, anticoagulation. This may be somebody who had a surgery like our first case. This was a surgically provoked clot. As long as they don't have another surgery, their risk of recurrence is pretty low. But as you move now to circle number two, you see that the risk of recurrence has gone up. 
but the risk of bleeding has not changed significantly. This is somebody who probably would benefit from long-term therapy. Maybe this was a first unprovoked VTE event in somebody who does not have very many bleeding risk factors. That person I'm gonna offer extended therapy to. On the other hand, if you move across to spot number three, this is a person with a similar risk of VTE recurrence. Again, maybe an unprovoked venous thromboembolic event, but now they're at much higher risk of bleeding. Perhaps they've recently had a bleed, they have thrombocytopenia, maybe they have to be on antiplatelet therapy for their uh, recent coronary disease, something like that. This is a person in whom maybe that risk-benefit ratio has shifted, and I may not put that person on an extended therapy, that the risk of bleeding would outweigh the risk of VTE recurrence. There are no absolute numbers here, but this is how I sort of conceptualize it. Dr. Minicello, does this match with how you approach thinking about bleeding risk, recurrence risk, and deciding who gets extended versus uh, shorter courses of anticoagulation, or, or how do you adapt this for your practice? Yeah, I completely agree. And I will tell you that maybe 50% of my practice in hematology is this question. I have a thrombosis clinic, and this is the question that people ask, how long should I keep people that keep this individual person on anticoagulation? Um, and I like this figure because it really highlights that you do have to think about that bleeding risk. And while the recurrence risk might be high, the bleeding risk may outweigh that. This really is a case-by-case -case consideration, unless it's a slam dunk, like a major provoked thrombosis, or someone who had an unprovoked thrombosis and now has had a major bleed. Most people fall in the middle there, trying to you know, think about risk versus uh, benefit for extended duration therapy. Um, and then I would just remind folks, if there is a person who had unprovoked thrombosis, but we're gonna stop anticoagulation because their risk of bleeding, we really wanna remember to protect them around high risk times in the future. That's an opportunity to educate them if they're gonna have another surgery or a long plane flight or that kind of thing. Maybe that's when we'll think about offering some prophylaxis to try and prevent their recurrence in the future. But yes, Dr. Barnes, this is the exact approach that, that I take. You know, the other question I get around this is, well, rather than three months of anticoagulation, what if I gave them six months? Or what if I gave them a year of anticoagulation? Would that extra time be helpful? And my answer to that is it's helpful as long as the patient is on their anticoagulant. What I'm showing you here is a really great study where patients who had an unprovoked DVT or PE were all given six months of anticoagulation. And after they finished that six months, half of them were randomized to continue on their anticoagulant for another 18 months, a total of two years. That's the group that's listed in blue labeled warfarin. The other half of patients after that first six months were randomized to receive placebo. That's the group in yellow. And what you can see is after six months, those who received placebo immediately started having clots. That's what we would expect. Without the protection of anticoagulation, patients will have recurrent events. But the group that received that extended uh, warfarin duration for up to two years, they had hardly any clots while they were on warfarin. But at that two-year mark, what you see labeled here is 18 months after randomization, they stopped warfarin as well. And as soon as they stopped warfarin, they immediately started having clots, almost at the same rate as those who had previously been on placebo. So what it really tells me is it's not about how long you're on the anticoagulant. It's about whether or not you're continuing to use the anticoagulant. So for me, we constantly have to reassess the risk and benefit ratio and decide, should this patient continue on their anticoagulant? 
and you need to reinforce to a patient, it's so important to stay adherent to your medication so that you'll get the benefit of reducing the risk of recurrent VTE. And this is really echoed in most of the guidelines. Here are the two most recent leading guidelines in this space from the American College of Chest Physicians, the CHEST 2021 guidelines, and the American Society of Hematology, or the ASH 2020 guidelines. And they both say that if your risk of recurrence is low because of a provoked transient risk factor event, you should receive a short course of either three or three to six months of anticoagulation. But everyone else, those with unprovoked VTE, those with chronic risk factors, those with recurrent VTE, and those who have cancer-associated VTE should be considered for extended duration beyond that initial three to six months, as long as the bleeding risk is not prohibitive. And so we have a couple choices in this space. You can continue those patients on the anticoagulant they were initially taking. So if you use one of those oral-only strategies, that's rivaroxaban 20 milligrams a day, apixaban 5 milligrams a day. If you chose to use warfarin, you could continue that as well. But after six months, we now have the option to reduce the dose in many of the patients. We can cut the dose of either rivaroxaban or apixaban in half in this extended duration or secondary prevention phase. So that would mean rivaroxaban 10 milligrams once a day or apixaban 2.5 milligrams twice a day. Dr. Minicello, can you maybe walk us through a little bit of when you use these half dose or reduced dose regimens in that secondary prevention or extended treatment phase? What are the types of patients where you'll often use this strategy? Sure. Um, you know, I, I always try to, I tell my patients, I always try to take them off of medications when I can or give them the lowest dose of a medication that is possible that will be effective. So I love these options for rivaroxaban and apixaban, these low dose options. Um, I'm certainly going to reach for this in patients who are maybe not such high bleeding risk that I'm not going to continue anticoagulation, but I'm a little bit more worried. Now, I know that the studies didn't show difference in major bleeding between the maintenance dose and the reduced dose, but in reality, it, there's definitely less nuisance bleeding that we're seeing, nose bleeding, uh, hematuria, et cetera. So we will often reach for that. Um, I will do it uh, also in our elderly patients in whom we are continuing anticoagulation. It's very unusual that we'll continue the full dose after um, six months time. Um, I, I don't offer dose reduction um, at this time in patients who are uh, markedly obese just because of a lack of data um, with the use of these very low doses. So um, I will often continue uh, the maintenance dose and not dose reduce, um, nor would I do it in a patient who has had recurrent thrombosis on anticoagulation. Um, and then I know there's a lot of discussion about patients who have clinical equipose. These studies initially were designed. Um, patient had to have clinical equipose about uh, continuing anticoagulation to be randomized to one of the low dose or the maintenance dose of rivaroxaban or apixaban. Um, but I will be honest, there are patients in whom I clearly want to continue anticoagulation, but I will still consider dose uh, reduction for ongoing secondary prevention. So I try to consider it in, 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 most, uh, in most patients. Um, in those patients who have had, or maybe very young, and I don't have a concern about bleeding, or who've had massive pulmonary embolism, um, or who have CTEF, I'm less inclined uh, to offer dose reduction. 
That's great. And I find many patients just psychologically like the idea of less medication, and that helps them think about accepting the fact that they may be on a long-term medication for this. So I find this strategy to be really effective for keeping my patients protected long-term. Let's come back to Arielle's case. Remember, she was our 47-year-old woman who developed this clot after her long plane flight from Thailand to New York City. You know, we talked a little bit about her chronic kidney disease and how that shouldn't impact the dosing. But Dr. Minicello, I, I might ask you, if she had severe chronic kidney disease, maybe if she was an end-stage renal disease patient, would that sway you in choosing a DOAC versus say heparin and warfarin? Or are you comfortable using the DOACs even in those severe forms of chronic kidney disease? Yeah, it's, it's funny, Jeff. If you asked me this maybe even six months ago, I think my answer may be different. Um, we are becoming more comfortable with what may be off-label use of apixaban for acute VTE and end-stage renal disease. And that is because of the concerning data that warfarin um, can be quite harmful in this population, uh, at least in atrial fibrillation. Um, so to say I'm comfortable, I think that's a strong word, but to say that I'm open to, to um, using it, disclosing this with the patient and the caregivers, the positive information in this area, there is there are some studies that um, are now looking at warfarin versus um, apixaban in this population, and um, they do not, it doesn't appear to be any more um, uh, risky and does appear to be as effective. These are not randomized controlled trials. So, so we are considering this more frequently. It's quite burdensome to admit somebody to the hospital for unfractionated heparin when they're end-stage renal disease bridging to warfarin, and that alone also has complications associated with it. So we are more open um, to this more recently. How about in your practice? I would agree. I, I think you raised a great point, shared decision-making. Have that conversation with the patient. I, I disclosed to them that these patients were not in the trials, but that it's a reasonable option to choose. And if that's what they want to go forward, they're at least aware of the potential benefits and risks. So I use the same approach in my practice. You know, this is a patient who clearly has a transiently provoked risk factor. So we're probably thinking more along that shorter duration length. I guess one of the questions I hear a lot is, what about thrombophilia testing? This is a young woman, only 47. Would you order thrombophilia testing for her after this event? So this is an area of much debate, and you probably know that you can ask three different people and get three different answers here. Um, so I, I am inclined to do thrombophilia testing, at least some in younger patients with thrombosis. Um, that's not majorly, majorly provoked. Like, I mean, if she had a hip replacement, I probably wouldn't. Or if she had major trauma with multiple long bone fractures, I may not. This is a long flight, but it's just a flight. And we have lots of people who take long flights and this doesn't happen. So I probably would be because if I found antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, that's gonna change how I manage things moving forward and it's certainly gonna change her risk. Um, some of the other thrombophilia may not change uh, so much. If she were a little bit younger, I would be even more inclined because the presence of thrombophilia may influence how we manage pregnancy uh, or post-pregnancy. So I might be interested in that. Um, but I definitely have a lower threshold to look for inherited and acquired thrombophilia in patients who are less than 50, certainly if it's uh, unprovoked or mildly provoked.
Yeah, I, I would agree. The vast majority of cases, I do not do thrombophilia testing and do not recommend. But those younger patients, sort of this weekly provoke situation and it's unsure, or it could impact other decision-making like pregnancy management, use of contraceptives, things like that. That's where I'll start to think about it. So I start with a no, and then sometimes I, I talk myself into a yes, very similar to you. But we generally don't do it in the acute setting. I'll just mention that. It's typically something we do in follow-up. Absolutely. And not just not in the acute setting, but many of the tests cannot be done while they're on anticoagulation. So you have to be willing to stop their anticoagulant to perform the thrombophilia test. This is actually one area where I think a referral to a specialist can be helpful because thrombophilia testing is not as easy as just ordering a panel. You really have to be thoughtful about how you're going to interpret the test. And if you're going to order it, understand how to interpret it, that might be an opportunity to engage a, a specialist. Other times I think about engaging specialists are patients with upper extremity DVT that was not associated with a catheter. That's unusual and we should figure out why that occurred. If they have a severe proximal DVT, I'm worried about needing an intervention for something like phlegmasia, that would be a reason to refer. Obviously anyone with a severe thrombophilia like antiphospholipid antibody syndrome should be managed by a specialist. And if you've had legitimate recurrent VTE while taking your anticoagulant, that raises concerns for other ongoing processes as well. An expert should be involved in that. Any clot that's in an unusual site, so one of the mesenteric veins or the cerebral sinus vein, that would be a reason to engage a specialist. And of course, anyone who has a pulmonary embolism and is still having dyspnea, still having fatigue, exercise intolerance, but they're more than say, two or three months from their clot, that may be somebody who has the post-PE syndrome and needs expert management as well. And Dr. Barnes, if I might just um, emphasize the timing of referral for patients with upper extremity DVT or severe proximal DVT, that's urgent referral because upper extremity DVT, it's not just why, it's actually that we may end up doing thrombolytics. Um, and if it is due to thoracic outlet syndrome, TOS, and more urgent surgery. So these are patients we want to urgently refer to vascular. So our last case is a 65-year-old man who has lung cancer, and he's just completed his course of chemotherapy, and he has a routine CT of the chest now for staging. And lo and behold, it shows that he has a right upper lobe segmental pulmonary embolism. Now he is completely asymptomatic. This is a complete surprise to him and to you. He's hemodynamically stable. His oxygen level is normal. His exercise capacity is normal. So should you offer anticoagulation for this incidentally noted asymptomatic pulmonary embolism? And if so, what would you use? So Jeff, how would you approach this incidental pulmonary embolism in this patient with pulmonary with uh, lung cancer? You know, incidental subsegmental PE is something we used to think maybe we don't need to treat, but we have some newer data suggesting it may still be a marker of future thrombotic events. And then add on to the mix here that this is a patient who had not just subsegmental but segmental PE, so it's a little larger, and that's in the setting of cancer. This is absolutely somebody who I would treat with anticoagulants. Now, historically, I would have used low molecular weight heparin because that was our go-to for anyone with cancer-associated thrombosis. But we now have pretty robust and good data saying that our direct oral anticoagulants, adoxaban, 
apixaban and rivaroxaban can all be very effective in patients with cancer-associated VTE. So just for ease of use, I'm probably going to reach for one of those to treat this patient. And are there certain cancer types or scenarios where you would not reach for the DOAC first line or you would be more inclined to go to the previously uh, more popular option of low molecular heparin? Yeah, the biggest concern here is really GI bleeding in patients who have a GI tract cancer. And we're thinking, especially those upper GI tract cancers. So I'm thinking about esophageal cancer, I'm thinking about gastric or duodenal cancer, or maybe even a pancreatic cancer if it's invading into the GI tract. Those would be cases in which the, the risk of GI bleeding might be higher. Some of the studies found it was higher, others didn't. I'm probably gonna lean more towards low molecular weight heparin in that case. But for all of the other cancers, it's so much easier to use the direct oral anticoagulants. And overall, the bleeding rates are either similar or lower to low molecular weight heparin. Patients really appreciate getting a pill rather than having to take a shot. That's a great point. And just to remind people, uh, again, there are drug interactions with the DOACs. Um, fewer than warfarin, but they are still there. And they, some of them do interact with different chemotherapeutic agents. So making sure that they would be a candidate based on their drug-drug um, interaction profile. So let's talk for a moment about transitions of care and follow-up. So it's really important to think about education for anticoagulation at every opportunity. We know that patients who are on anticoagulation and transition care from the hospital home, from the ER home, from home to the hospital, um, these are very high risk times for patients who are anticoagulated. So making sure they understand their diagnosis and they understand how to use their medications is critical. And remember when you provide education in the hospital, patients may not always remember what they're told at that time when they're ill. So doing that again in follow-up is really important, making sure they know the signs and symptoms of bleeding to report to you, the signs and symptoms of progressive thrombosis to report to you, and to tell you anytime they add a new medication or their planned interruption of therapy. These are really, really important things. Make sure that the patient has access to the medication that has been prescribed. This is particularly important coming out of the emergency room or the hospital. They'll often be given a medication, but not necessarily have access to it based on affordability um, at that present time or even in the future. So that's critical. Remind patients to request refills for these medications in advance, particularly in acute VTE. You do not want to miss a dose of medications. So we wanna make sure they don't run out. And as Dr. Barnes mentioned, assess for anxiety and depression that may follow on the heels of a diagnosis of DVT or PE. There are good resources. Um, the National Blood Clot Alliance offers and there's patient support groups there. The, the website is there for reference. And then for patients who have pulmonary embolism, particularly if they're treated outpatient, you wanna follow up in very short order within the next few days after discharge to make sure that they're doing well. And then following up at least at three months time making sure that they're getting back to baseline because if not, they may need a referral for echo or onto uh, a pulmonary. There are a number of resources available for providers uh, regarding anticoagulation care. The Anticoagulation Forum Center of Excellence is a fantastic resource. They have bridging guidelines, how to transition between agents, 
order sets. Um, Mackie Anticoagulation Toolkit is a gold mine. I recommend people take a look and consider downloading resources there. And then for drug-drug interactions, we listed these three websites. Um, it's important to note that the prescribing information for the DOACs for drug-drug interactions is not comprehensive. It gives you suggestions um, and it kind of leads you to do a lot of work yourself. And these websites are very helpful. Well, Dr. Minicello, thank you for joining me today. This was just a wonderful discussion, and I know I learned a lot, and I'm sure everyone who's been listening in has learned as well. I want to thank all of you for participating with us. We hope you have enjoyed this and found it useful for your clinical practice, and we hope to see you soon in another session. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education.